Well, we'll be in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. If you'd turn there with me. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. I'm going to learn you something. The highest paid actor in the years 2020 and 2021 was a defensive tackle who couldn't even make the cut in the Canadian Football League. I didn't even know they played American football in Canada, but this defensive tackle, he couldn't make the cut. And before he transitioned to acting, he was a all-star, world-renowned wrestler. And now some of you can smell what I'm cooking. And some of you are like, what the heck is this guy talking about? What I'm talking about is Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who was paid about $65 million per movie in the years 2020 and 2021. It's gone up since then, but unfortunately Tom Cruise has made some movies, so Dwayne The Rock dropped to number two. But he made five movies in the year 2022 and, and 2021, and, or 2020 and 2021, so you can do the math, five movies, around $65 million a movie. Now, The Rock is not winning any Oscars. He's not winning any acting awards. In fact, I almost wanted to put a meme up on the screen of it's The Rock in about five different movies, but he's wearing the same costume, and it's like this could be the same movie. It's like he just does the same thing in every movie. He's a swashbuckling, adventurous rogue who's got a heart of gold, and he's like a giant. So no one's arguing with you that The Rock gets hired because of his act. Doesn't get hired because of his acting ability. He gets hired because he sells tickets, and he sells tickets because he has a brand. In fact, The Rock himself is a brand. His entire life is his own brand. And part of that brand is maintaining his six foot two, 275 pounds of pure muscle. It's central to his messaging. It's central to who he is. If he wasn't jacked, would he even be Dwayne The Rock Johnson? So I was curious, how does The Rock maintain this physique? And I found a snippet of stuff online. So here's, let's if any of you are, are dietitians or if you work out, uh, let's see if you can keep up with Dwayne Johnson here. He works out between three to four hours a day. He runs an hour every day, and he does between 50 to 100 reps of about eight different lifts every single day, which is roughly about 3,500 lifts a week. That's, that's a lot of lifting. Well, what does he eat? Well, he eats about three pounds of meat a day, 12 eggs a day, one whole sweet potato, one whole baked potato, three salads, and a whole slew of other vegetables a day. You got to make $65 million a movie to maintain that diet. He goes to extreme lengths to maintain what he sees as central to his livelihood, to his persona. The person that he is, is this physique. So he devotes hours and hours of his day to this aspect of his life. Every meal he eats is in service to his body. Every, or, you know, four to five hours of his day are in service to his physique. In fact, this working out and eating right is, is no longer even just an aspect of his life. It is his life. Like, remaining ripped is The Rock's life. He eats four chickens, 3,500 curls. He's devoted to training. It's 
integral to who he is. And so today, in first, Ryan's like, what are you talking about? I thought this was a sermon. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is going to instruct Timothy to a similar devotion. A devotion to training. And though the rock is training his body, I want you to imagine that Paul is calling Timothy to the same level of intensity and to the same level of devotion. Now, the object and the motivation of the training is different. Paul does not want us to train our bodies. He says, that's okay. But he wants, to train, he wants us to train for godliness. And so our main idea of the day, the main thing I want you to go, when, when someone asks, what was the sermon about? This is what I want you to say. Training for godliness is not an aspect of the Christian life. Training for godliness is the Christian life. Training for godliness isn't an aspect of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. So pick up with me. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 4, starting out in verse 6. And here's what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive. Some of your, verses, or some of your uh, translations may say, we toil and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Father, we are grateful that you have given us a morning to devote time to open your word, to see what you ask of us, to see who you are and how we are to relate to you. So God, use this time. Let my words not fall on their ears, but your word fall on the hearts and ears of those who listen this morning. God, let Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the foundation of all that we do, be glorified this morning by this sermon. It's in your son's name we ask all these things. Amen. So, we're going to talk about the word godliness a lot today. We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say godliness a lot. And so I want to give a brief definition for what I mean and what I think Paul means when he's talking about godliness. And so here's, here's a definition I think is helpful. It's going to be up on the screen. Godliness is a passionate commitment to reflecting the character of Christ. Godliness is a passionate commitment to reflecting the character of Christ. And I think it's very important that the word up there is, is passionate. Because I think sometimes we, we can fall into sort of two camps when we think about godliness. We think, oh, this is a thing that happens to me passively. It's not, a, it's not a passionate commitment. It's a passive commitment. The Holy Spirit just comes on me and then just, just does his work and makes me look like Jesus. I don't got to do anything about it. And that's, that's not true. It's not passive. We have to take an active step. But it's also, it's not just passionate. or It's, it's, not, it's not passive, but it's also not private. It's not private. We don't, we don't just so happen to become more like Jesus by sitting in our houses and, and doing nothing. John Piper says uh, that no one is more godly 
or no one is persecuted for being godly because they sit in their house and watch clean movies. That's not what it means to be godly. No, it's if, if it's to reflect the character of Christ, what does Christ do? He goes out into the world and he ministers to sinners and he calls them to repentance and he, and he speaks into their lives. So we want to have a passionate commitment to reflect the character of Jesus that will take us out into the world to minister to people around us. So passionate, vehement, fervent in our commitment to living a life that is worthy of the life of Jesus. And so to approach that goal, Paul is saying, if you want to live like Jesus, it's going to take some work. It's going to take some practice. It's going to take some training. And so Paul, I think, is going to point us at three different things that are going to help us in our training. And I'm going to give them to you up top. We're going to, we're going to come back to them. He's going to point us to the diet of godliness, the discipline of godliness, and the direction of godliness. So the diet the discipline, and the direction. Good Baptist sermon, three points, three Ds. So let's look at verse 6, the diet of godliness. What is the diet of becoming more godly? Well, he says, put these things before the brothers. He's saying, I, Paul, have just imparted some teaching to you, Timothy. And what I want you to do is I want you to put it before your brothers, and you will see that it's good doctrine that I am teaching you. Right? Put it before you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So first, he's saying you want to test what is being taught to you. Put it before your brothers. I don't want to be the only authority in your life, Timothy. I want verification from your brothers and from the scriptures that what I'm teaching you is true. And then Paul goes on to say, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Paul isn't, so when I first read this verse, I was like, does that mean I can't watch movies? Does that mean I can't watch TV? Like, they're just kind of like, I can't read comic books? Like, they're just kind of silly myths? Well, Paul's not really talking about mythology. What he's actually doing is refuting in some really strong words some false teaching that's going on in Ephesus, the church that, that Timothy is at. He's saying, there is teaching going on that is so bad that it's silly. It might as well be mythology. And he says that before we can train for godliness, we have to examine the doctrine that we are taking in. The doctrine is the diet that we eat that propels us towards spiritual training. The diet in this case is not the three pounds of fish and chicken that the rock is eating, but it's doctrine that we learn in our heads. It's an intake of good, sound, biblical, biblical doctrine. And Paul is not saying like, Go study those things. Go, go kind of maybe flirt with this teaching or that teaching. But he's saying, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Nothing to do with it. It's silly. That's goofy stuff. Don't mess with it. And so many times, I think we read that. We want to get right to the train yourself for godliness. And so we read straight through this, and we think, well, I go to church, and my pastor is pretty smart. And my youth pastor is like, he gets up and preaches sometimes. And I take good notes, and so I don't have anything to do with silly myths. But more often than not, church, we are foolishly led into believing really silly things because we aren't on guard against false doctrines. We aren't guarding ourselves, we aren't guarding our minds against silly beliefs. And this is really important, that Paul in this verse, he's not talking about pagan teaching. He's not talking about other religions, false religions. He's saying people are coming to you saying that they are Christians, and they are teaching you silly things. So there are times in our churches 
in our lives that we are taught via podcasts or books or whatever it be, may be, that it's some silly things. We sometimes aren't vigilant enough. We see Jesus in the title, or we see church in the title, or we see Christian in the title, and we're like, that's probably good. Like, I want Jesus to call me, so I'll, I'll read this. So let me show you where not eating a good diet of godliness has gotten us. If you were at Rooted, sorry, I'm like the stats guy now. I love stats. So I'm going to show you some stats. Every year, uh, Lifeway and a, a ministry called Ligonier can conduct a survey of Christian belief. And they start with about six basic claims about Christianity. And if you verify those claims, then they, they categorize you as being an a evangelical Christian. Now, if you're kind of like got some, some weird stuff in there, they may say you're still a Christian, but you're non-evangelical. Or you may reject some, some things outright, and so they categorize you as non-Christian. So we are a Southern Baptist church, and with a slew of other churches and denominations, we are categorized as evangelical. And so here are some beliefs that are rampant in the churches that, are, that classify as evangelical. Our brothers and sisters, the same people, we would, we would worship together, we would go to church with them. These are uh, our brothers and sisters. We, we would affirm their believers. Here's what they uh, are responding. They're going to be up on the screen, but I'm going to read them to you too. They may be a little small. So get this. Se this is all of evangelical Christians. 73% agree with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That's heresy. That's an ancient heresy that was refuted in like the 300s. Jesus was not created. Jesus eternally existed. Yet seven, almost 75% of evangelical people that were surveyed believe that Jesus was created. That's wrong. 58% believe that God, Yahweh, accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. It's like, well, it's going up a different pipe, but it somehow gets to God. That's not true. He does not accept the worship of false gods. 56 agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. That's false. That's neglecting what uh, the author of the book of Hebrews has commanded us to do, to not neglect gathering together. 55% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, like they're Jedi or something, not a person. Like the Holy Spirit is a, is a person. He, this is a, like, maybe this is like a hot topic, but the, the Holy Spirit uses he, him pronouns. It's a person. It's not a force. 55% agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are pretty good. You're not good. If you're in here and you believe that, you're not good. You've been affected by the fall of Adam and Eve, and you are sinful. 53% agree with the claim that even the smallest sin uh, does disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. We ask this to seven-year-olds who come into the office to be baptized. We say, how many sins does it take for God to justly and rightly send you to hell? And the correct answer is one. But half of people in our churches don't believe that. 46% disagree that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. And 44%, 44% of evangelical Christians say Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Church, if, if Jesus was not God, his payment on the cross does not matter and we cannot be redeemed. This is the state of theology in our country and it is a result of a bad diet or even worse sometimes, the lack of a diet. Too often, we are intaking the equivalent of spiritual fast food, right? We, we see that Jesus, we see that Christian, we see that church and we say, this is good, this is helpful, this is going to make me grow, but that just isn't the case. We have to test those things about, uh, against the scriptures or we're just spiritually and theologically anorexic. 
We just refuse to study our Bible. We just refuse to engage with a sermon. We just refuse to do anything. We just, I don't want to learn at all. I refuse to eat this spiritual diet that I've been getting. Instead, we need to start verifying that everything we hear in preaching, what I'm preaching to you right now, I want you to go home and I want you to open God's word throughout the week and I want you to verify that what I've been saying to you is true. And if you find that it's not true, I want you to come and tell me. And if you convince me that you're right, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to apologize that I taught false doctrine. Right? I want you to go home and to verify what I am teaching to you. Don't just assume because I'm in seminary that I know what's what. I don't. <laughs> I know what God has revealed to me in his scripture and that's all I can show you. We cannot begin to approach godliness. We can't train for godliness if we don't know what God's word has to say about God's character, about his work in the world, and how we fit into that work. So church, we have to, we have to, have to, it's dire, be vigilant in learning what the Bible actually says, or we are going to fall prey to some silly, irreverent myths. The Bible is our first and ultimate authority on what is good and true. The Bible is our ultimate authority. It teaches us what is true. It teaches us what is right, what is morally acceptable. It is our ultimate authority. So the first step we have to take in our training is to be sure that we are eating a good spiritual diet. Losing weight, right? 70% diet, 30% exercise. So we can't even, like the training we do is not even going to be important if we don't eat a good diet. So we have to be learning and growing in our knowledge of God so that we can start to know what it's like to be like him. If we are ignorant of what God is like, if we are ignorant of what Jesus is like, we can never be like him. It would just be guesswork. So we have to, have to, have to know God's word. But look at this. I think it's so great because Paul doesn't just say, hey, don't do that. Don't pay attention to those things. But he gives us a better option, right? He says, so don't do those things. Rather, Train yourself for godliness. So he, he says, have discipline in your life. So he says, hey, instead of doing that, why don't you train yourself for godliness? Instead of devoting your life to false teaching, why don't you train yourself to be like God? I love the, the word that Paul uses here. It's so, so interesting. I learned this in studying this text. The Greek word is gymnase or gymnase which is where we get the word gymnasium. So Paul doesn't want Timothy to see this as like piety, right? He's like, Timothy, I want you to train yourself for godliness. I want you to go pray by yourself. I want you to go into the woods. I want you to go do all these good things. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to, I want you to go worship. I want you to go do all these things. No, he's like, this is going to take some work. Like, you're going to sweat. This is going to be hard. This is, you need dedication. You need devotion to do this. Because I'm not asking you to just like, Go pretend to be godly. No, I want you to work. I want you to train. I want you to have self-discipline because that is what it's going to take to train yourself for godliness. Another way that that could be translated is, is disciplined, right? Discipline yourself towards godliness. So how do we discipline ourselves? How do we train ourselves to be godly? What is the workout plan? Well, I think there are a few basic things that it takes to start training for godliness. Now, don't tune me out. You've heard this preached probably a billion times. I know my, I tell my youth these three things I'm about to tell you all the time, but don't tune it out because it's so important. 
If we are, if being godly is passionately committing to reflecting the character of Christ, we need these three things. First, we need to have an experience with God's word. If we are to reflect God's character, then we first need to know what God is like. We need the, we need the information before we can get to emulation. Like, we need to know what God is like before we can ever live like him. We need information before we can get to emulation. If we don't know God, we can never be like him. We can't know what he values. We can't know what he loves. We can't know what he's like. And this is, like, the greatest thing about Scripture. Like, Scripture is the greatest gift we could have, like, ever received outside of the, the sacrifice of Jesus because we don't have to guess what God is like. We don't have to just, like, fumble around in the dark to know what God thinks is good or what God thinks is acceptable. No, we, he has shown us exactly what he is like and exactly what he demands of us in his word. He didn't just, like, lock himself behind some celestial gate and say, figure it out. But no, he showed us, and not just that, but he actually, he didn't just give us commands, but he actually entered, he left heaven, entered the broken world, and lived perfectly according to all of his own commands, and showed us what he is like on the earth, in the person of Jesus. The, the person and the life of Jesus is like this outline that we're trying to mold and fit ourselves into. If you're a, a musical person, it's like a melody that we are trying to sing along with and not have dissonance. Or maybe it's like a blueprint. This is the blueprint, and we're trying to build our lives according to this blueprint. The life of Jesus is that blueprint, that, that melody, that outline. And so if we're going to say that the Bible is the ultimate authority in our lives, let's not live like it's just any other book that I can just pick up and read at will. It's not Twilight. That's like an old reference. Hunger Games? I don't know. It's like we don't just get to pick it up and be like, I'm team this or team that. It's like, no, we have to devour it. If we believe that this is the very word of God, we should be just noshing on it all the time, thinking about it, talking about it. Like, if one day you were like, mystic like supernaturally granted the knowledge and the belief like the actual belief that this is the word of God like we believe that but we don't really believe it because if we really believed it then we would actually make excuses to keep reading it instead of making excuses to not read it like we'd be canceling our our sports practices and we'd be canceling our 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 date nights with our with our friends and we'd be canceling stuff left and right because like I gotta go read God's word like God spoke, you know, like the guy that created everything that you've ever seen and every smell that you've ever smelled and every taste that you've ever tasted. Did you know he wrote a book? And did you know that he gave it to us and, and we can read it? I got I to gotta set some time. I got to go read this thing. But too many times it's the other way around. We make excuse after an excuse after an excuse to not do it. But we don't live that way. So what do we do? Well, we, if we are actively working against our own spiritual training, we need a second thing. We need intervention from God. We're unable to do this training on our own. We constantly are going to fight against doing this training. We're constantly going to make excuses and rebel against our own beliefs, right? But if you are in Christ, if you have accepted Christ, if you have crowned him king of your life, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. And if you ask him, he will convict you and encourage you to take the first steps and to persevere in this spiritual training. Like, you have to do that. Like, it won't work any other way. You won't wake up someday and be like, I'm, I think I'm going to train for godliness today. I know I haven't for the last 20 years, but today I'm going to do it. Or, you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to go home and think, 
that was a good sermon. I'm going to start training for godliness. Like, my, my sermon is not going to do it. Only the Spirit can compel you. Only the Spirit can convict you and encourage you to make you work to look more like Jesus every single day. So every day our prayer, above everything else, should say, God, help me look like you today. Help me grow and look more like you today than I did yesterday. But not only does that cause God to intervene on our behalf, but we actually are living out an act of godliness when we pray. Because what did Jesus constantly do? He went out and prayed, right? He, he left his disciples and he went off and he went on his own and he prayed. And did Jesus, like, Jesus didn't have to pray. Like, Jesus was eternally connected to the Father. He did not have to pray, but he did it to be an example to us. To say, hey, here's what a godly life looks like. It looks like someone who relies on prayer. So I want to make, so I have this book right here. It's called Praying the Bible. It's by Don Whitney. There's like a bunch of copies outside on a table in the lobby. If you today think, I want to start reading the Bible and I want to start praying every day, go out and grab this book. It is like 70, it's like 100 pages long, less than that. Like the very last page is page 87. Like take this book, go home, read the first chapter, and it'll teach you how to read a psal- five psalms a day, pray one of them, and at the end of the month, you'll have read the entire book of psalms. You'll have read your Bible, and you will have called out to God in prayer. So this is a really helpful guide, really helpful tool that I want to make available to you. So they're out there uh, in the foyer at the end of service. Just take one. You don't have to pay for it. Just, just take it. But only take it if you're committing to use it because someone else might not get one and they want it. And if you don't get one, you want it, I'll buy it for you. So we need information. We need an experience with the Bible. We need intervention from God. And lastly, we need encouragement from our brothers and sisters. I've been saying this to the youth uh, for months now. There is no better way to consistently read the Bible than doing it with a friend or a group of people. There's no better way to be held to biblical teaching, to have a good spiritual diet, than by reading the Bible, discussing it with a friend. Right? In bodily training, when, when you're like the rock and you're, you're working out four to five hours a day or whatever, like you got a spotter, you got a physical trainer that's going to help you and say, hey, you should maybe do this workout. Or hey, you're not getting as deep on your squats as you need to. I don't know if that's like a thing. I don't work out. You got to pull the Bowflex harder. I don't know. <laughs> so one of the youth just said, stop it. But we need people to, God just said stop it. <laughs> we need people to show us where we have to re-examine, where we have to work, where we have to, where we're, where we're not working and we should, right? Different perspectives on a theological issue and correct our, tra- our, our training and our thinking in any multitude of ways. So look around you. Here are people in this room who commit to wanting to be like Jesus. Find someone and say, hey, I, I need your help training. I want you to hold me accountable in our training. I I want you to text me every day and ask me if I've read my Bible. I want you to text me every day and ask me if I've prayed for my family or or for, uh, for, for God to change my heart. There's no reason to do this alone. God did not intend for us to do this alone. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. And I don't even know why he's called the Lone Ranger because he's got Tonto. Never made sense to me. So commit to reading a gospel or reading the Psalms together. Our D groups have been meeting for like, 20 plus weeks, and we've been reading the Gospel of Luke, and it's been so joy-giving 
to discuss it uh, with, with, with brothers who are, who are in this room and, and to uh, just like marinate and digest it and see the goodness and the great plan that God had and the, the beautiful character that Jesus is and the, the beautiful like way we can live if we live according to his teaching. But when I read, I just like, you know, just read it, done, read it. But no, I go talk to these guys and I marinate and I think deeper and it, and it brings me more joy. It brings me more encouragement. In- encouragement. It's helped me know Jesus better and live in step with Jesus better. And I honestly can tell you that I can reflect Jesus better on a day-to-day basis because I read the Gospel of Luke and go discuss it with my D group. So we have to have encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have to eat a good diet. We have to have discipline. But lastly, we have to be directed. There's a direction of godliness. So Paul, after, after commanding, you know, train yourself for godliness. He says bodily training is of some value. So it's like, if you're in here and you're working out, like at least you know that Paul said, that's kind of valuable. It's a little valuable. But then what did he say? Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior. This is one of the most important parts of this part of Scripture. Because so many people in this room are either caught in the trap of legalism or were raised in the trap of legalism. And Christianity is seen in legalism as a tool for moral conformity. Right? I'm going to make you follow all the right rules, which is bad. That's bad teaching. Right? We don't want to be legalists. But sometimes I'm scared that the pendulum has swung away from legalism so hard and, and that we're just like, well, Jesus paid it all. So I don't really have to change myself much because like, Jesus, Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus sacrificed paid for my sin, so I don't, I don't got to do that. And we neglect personal holiness. We neglect godliness. But hear me, church, there are commands in the Bible. And though we cannot personally keep all of them, the blood of Jesus does wash away all of our sins. But if we really understand the beauty of the gospel, then we will be passionate about being godly. That's the direction we have to move our godliness. It's not out of legalism, but out of passion, out of zeal for who Jesus is. We have to figure out how we can want to live like Jesus, not just that we're expected to live like Jesus. We have to want to do it. And Paul does a beautiful job of directing our passions, directing our training. He's giving this, this is the why. Why should you train for godliness? Why do you need to passionately seek to reflect God's character? Well, he says, because it's valuable. There's no area in your life. There's no area in your life that godliness is not valuable. In your relationships, in your job, in your family, in your marriage, whatever you're struggling with, in your finances, any ass, in your schools, whatever, right? In everything that you're doing, Paul's number one advice for a better marriage, be more godly. Paul's number one piece of advice for going to school, be more godly. Whatever it is, train yourself for godliness. It's, gonna, it's, it's valuable in every single way. It's not just some arbitrary set of rules and expectations, but it's honestly from the word of God. It says, this is the best way to live. This is the most beneficial way to live. You will get the most value out of your life when you use it training for godliness. 
You will get the most value out of your life when you spend it training for godliness. When you are on your de- if you spend your life training for godliness, seeking to be more and more like Jesus, you can sit on your deathbed and you can say, I used my life well. Because I trained for godliness. And Paul is saying, this is not legalism because it's not just making God happy with you. It doesn't just get you out of hell. But what he's saying is that he knows with every fiber of his being that this is the most valuable way to spend your time. It makes your life worth living. But that's not the last word. The final reason that Paul wants us to train for godliness, the final direction that he directs our training, the the final place he pushes our attention isn't even on us. He doesn't say, I mean, he says, this is going to make your life better. Uh, This is really valuable. He says, you should do this. You should ignore the, the silly myths. And then he says, but we toil and we strive and we struggle and we work for this end. Here's the end. Because we have hope in the living God who is the Savior. Training for godliness is not even about you. It's about Christ. It's about living out the hope that you have experienced when you set your eyes on the person of Jesus. It's the outworking of the faith that you have that Jesus is the king of all kings. He is who he says he is. We train for godliness because we were dead. We were dead in our sin. But because God has great love for us, he showed us grace and he showed us mercy and he sent Jesus to die for us. So we don't train for godliness because we have to. And we don't train for godliness because it's the best way to live. Though it is, we train for godliness because we see an example of a person. A person who left perfection existing to heaven and he came into brokenness and dirtiness and and a messed up earth where people get sick and there are natural disasters and people die and people get spit on and he came to earth knowing that one day he was going to get put on a cross and die the most brutal death that had ever been invented by human beings he was going to get mocked he was going to get flayed he was all these horrible things were going to happen to him and he was going to be cast aside by the people that he loved the dearest They were going to pretend they didn't know him. He knew all that was coming. And because he loved you, because he loved, hear this, because he loved you in your seat right now, today, on the 25th of September in the year 2022, he loved you, not a future version that's cleaner, not not anything else. He loved you right here, right now. He loved you so much that he endured that anyway. He died Anyway, and he raised again and is working in the world, orchestrating it, so that one day every tribe and every tongue and every nation will know that Jesus is a good king, and they will praise him for his works. That is why we train for godliness. Not out of obligation, not because it's going to make our lives so much better. It's not out of fear. It's not out of selfish gain. But Paul says, we train for godliness because Jesus is alive. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus put his life down for his friends. And don't you want to be a tiny bit like him? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you impart on us an awe of who you are.
not just because you are good, not just because you are loved, not just because you have shown us grace, but God, because you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. Because you have loved us so deeply that you endured the cross. God, give us awe, give us wonder. Strike our hearts and minds with the beauty of your gospel today. Because that is the motivation behind our training for godliness. That is the thing that will propel us to look more and more and more like your son. So God, we ask that you give it to us today. Show us your holiness and God, reveal to us in a clear mirror our brokenness. Because when we know how holy you are and how sinful we are, God, the, the cross gets a whole lot bigger. And our desire to live like you and to work like you gets that much bigger. So God, use your spirit this week to convict us to make us love you and in turn love your word, to make us pull our brothers and sisters close and say, love me enough to tell me to read my Bible. Love me enough to pray with me. Love me enough to help me break my pride and break my habits so that I can start training for godliness. And God, convict us to start praying and praying and praying that we would look more and more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today. God, we do this all out of our love and devotion to you. We can love you because you first loved us. So God, let us live and work and train out of that love. It's in your son's name we pray. All God's people said, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know what his work uh, has imparted uh, to you, I'm gonna be right down here. I'd love to introduce you. But maybe you're here and you just want to know, you just want to celebrate the work that Jesus has done in your life. You want to commit in your heart to train in godliness. Well, I encourage you to stand and to sing, to grab someone that's near you and say, hey, let's train together. Just use this time to respond in whatever way you need. Let's stand and sing.